Hello, welcome back to the Liberal Europe podcast in lockdown. This is Ricardo Silvestre for our second episode where we tackle some of the most pressing issues going on right now in the European Union. And of course, some of them will relate to this pandemic with the COVID-19. And today I'll be speaking with Edith Gut. Edith is a Hungarian political scientist and visiting lecturer at the Center for Europe at the University of Warsaw. She's also a Democrat fellow at the Visegrad Insight and also a fellow at the German Marshall Fund. In this conversation, we go into some of the authoritarian tendencies that we're seeing in some Eastern European countries, particularly in Hungary and Poland. But Edit also gives a little bit of a historical background to understand how do we got here and how we can come out of it. I would also like to leave a thank you note to our colleagues at Visegrad Insight because their uh, event called Visegrad Inside Breakfast, Free, Free Democratic Institutions in Lockdown, that was co-sponsored by the European Liberal Forum, is where I had the opportunity for the first time to see Edit. So thank you guys for helping me reach her. And with no further ado, I bring you Edit's Good. I'm here with Edit. This is good. Edit, thank you so much for coming to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Ricardo. Oh, it's very good to have you here at Timely because of all the things that we're seeing on Eastern Europe and particularly on those two countries that you have such a close relationship, which is Hungary and Poland. And later on in the conversation, I'm going to ask you a little bit for you to describe the work you do. But for now, let's go into it. And that is one thing that you mentioned often in your work and when I saw you on the Visegrad Insight breakfast, it's a crucial factor for integration of multiple countries and now with the crisis with the COVID-19 is trust, it's compromise, it's you know having a, a platform for working in collaboration. Why do you think that these things are failing us now? Yeah, thanks. So, um, as I just mentioned in my articles, that uh, the main challenge the European Union has to face right now is that when it comes to a multiple crisis at such magnitude that we are going through now, or simply the evocation of an, any emergency situation, it often plays into the hands of anti-critical, uh, authoritarian, Eurosceptic voices. So, just to have a better understanding about why is it problematic in terms of trust, let me go uh, look back a little bit into sort of the recent history of the EU integration. Because before this crisis started, and even before the refugee crisis has escalated in 2014, the EU has been struggling under various crises for already 10 years. So after the accession of the 10 uh, post-Soviet uh, um, Central Eastern European states in 2002, uh, to 2004, there was a, already a constitutional political crisis going on within the EU, mainly due to the sort of a lack of political vision about how the EU integration should proceed further. So firstly, this kind of cleavage could be identified between supranationalists and intergovernmentalist sort of approach between those countries who would give more competences to Brussels versus those who would keep the decision making within national governments. And, and as a result, in the end of the day, of this kind of modeling through, we have seen the Schengen Treaty in 2009 that prevailed. So some progress have, have, has, has been made, but otherwise the EU remains as an economic, you know, kind of 
giant and a, and a political dwarf. So this crisis uh, then merged with the debt crisis of the Euro Eurozone that also had a significantly eroded mutual trust within the EU. And there has been a huge tension between Western countries, Northern Western countries, such as Germany, Finland, Netherlands. Uh, so this kind of fiscally more conservative countries and Southern member states about debt sharing and solidarity. And then in the last five years, this whole situation, which is complex even enough, uh, has escalated by further by two factors, the, the refugee crisis and the rule of law crisis, among others. So another clavage emerged along with those, for instance, who, who believe that sort of that rule of, rule of law uh, should be like uh, protected. And, uh, and so this kind of new clavage has uh, emerged between Central Eastern European governments and some democratic promoters such as Denmark, Finland, Finland, Netherlands or Sweden. Um, and right now, the main challenge is is that this global pandemic crisis and its implications are further weakening this kind of basis of mutual trust and the willingness for a joint act. And especially because, as I mentioned, this coronavirus is a sort of a perfect storm for Eurosceptic populists to further undermine the credibility of the European Union. And it provides uh, another opportunity for Eurosceptics to increase their political sort of capital throughout EU bashing and Eurosceptic populism as a sort of a composite concept is on the rise now. And I'm very happy to elaborate on that more specifically, if you'd like. Absolutely. But before you do that, I want us to step back a little bit, because something that it's really interesting to observe, and you just mentioned and very correctly so that the European Union, it's at heart an economical union, not a political one. But when we look at, for example, Poland, uh, that is the example that I know the best, there is a high regard for the European Union as a concept. So European Union is very popular among people in Eastern Europe. How then do you describe, how do you explain this eurosceptics, this euro bashing, and now particularly with the COVID-19, gaining so much traction when people in their bases, at, at least we believe so, people want to be part of the European family. That's a very good and very complex question and reflects upon a, a broad range, range of public attitudes in the region. So let me highlight four main factors here, which I believe contributes to this kind of dichotomy that you just, uh, that you just uh, fleshed out. So I think one of the key feature of, and let's focus mainly on, on Poland and Hungary, because I, 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 I think it's, it's fair to say that these are the countries where the leadership is the most sort of uh, more, more Eurosceptic and, you know, launching uh, destructive uh, anti-EU uh, campaigns, mainly, mainly in Hungary. So the key feature of this regime is that an external enemy has to be present constantly and this kind of anti-establishment sentiments have been very successfully exploited by law and justice and, and Fidesz governments. They were successfully directed, sort of the channeling the anti-establishment electoral frustration towards the European Union, which does not mean that, you know, it's not mutually exclusive, ironically, it's not mutually exclusive with being, being pro-European Union, because most of the people, there's sort of an sort of some sort of an agreement within the society that we need to be part of the European Union, and there are many, many other institutional sort of aspects of that. I'm going to get back to that. 
uh, soon. But what these governments are very successful at is that they're directing the frustration toward internal and external enemies. So they're depicting, of course, internal enemies. Uh, these are, you know, oppositional parties and opponents of the governments. But external enemy has to be present constantly. And the EU is just a perfect target for that. It's a perfect target to exploit sort of anti-establishment sentiments. It's far, it's it's far away. It's not really part of our everyday life. It's it's very difficult to 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 grasp. Uh, so it's it's a perfect boogeyman. And uh, and most importantly, and here comes to the crisis factor, you can simply bash the EU while referring to, you know, like asylum seekers and refugees, and you can simply mangle these sort of phenomena together. Um, and the is, speaking of the institutional sort of part and public attitudes, Central and Eastern Europe has been traditionally serving the role of early warning system for the West because there is a very low level of uh, interpersonal trust low level of social capital and a very low level of trust within democratic institutions. Uh, and this is practically very favorable for Eurosceptic um, and, and anti-democratic backsliding. So the earliest textbook case was Slovakia, the first V4 country that, you know, walked along this kind of authoritarian past in the, in the 90s. But most importantly, um, in the last 20 years, the, the depth of democratic consolidation has been tested because this kind of erosion of trust in democratic institutions had taken place in this region even before the euro crisis and the migration crisis has escalated. So, for instance, there was a poll in 2007, Gallup International polled already that in Central Eastern Europe, uh, societies are more skeptical about a state of democracy and only one third trusted democratic process. And at the same time, trust in the European Parliament, for instance, remain high, but this is strictly related to the very lack of trust within our democratic institutions. And also ordinary people by these governments were successfully uh, depicted as losers of the democratic transition when the most important sort of geopolitical goal was to join, join the European Union. Also, leftist parties have uh, mainly lost their credibility within the working class. So those who have left or felt like they have been left behind were provided by a new kind of narrative by uh, law and justice and Fidesz governments. Um, it simply made it possible for the nationalist right wing parties to fill in the gap, ride the wave of dissatisfaction about democratic transition. And this is how Viktor Orban and Jaroslav Kaczynski could push this message that a new type of democracy and a corrected transition is needed. Um, so this is how they, they uh, sort of succeeded. And my fourth that I wanted to mention, the fourth factor is that these leaders are successfully riding the wave of impatience with liberal constraints on governments. So they're depicting checks and balances as sort of an obstacle of getting things done for the people. And this is the same message, the same logic works with the European Union, that the European Union is criticizing these, these governments while they're trying to serve the will of the Polish and Hungarian people. And that's the main message. This is how they try to justify it also their, their system transformation efforts in the last five, 10 years, and their sort of approach when it comes to how to solve uh, uh, the, the, the sort of the crisis by combating the coronavirus in a very effective way. Fascinating, this point. And this one with the checks and balances, I'm going to ask you to come back to the podcast soon because we need to talk about this because we see this too too often now in, in, the, in the world. We see this in the United States. Imagine that. We see this in Brazil. 
uh, we see on uh, some countries in Africa, also in Asia, this um, tendency to not have checks and balance, to have power centralized in, in the system and in the person. Like, for example, the Soviet Union was a model and you guys know it so well because it was so close to, uh, to, to, to your country, to Hungary and to Poland, to give two examples. So let me change a little bit now, and that is, what can we do that then? So how can we make these countries, these leaders, these parties understand that to be part of the European Union, to be part of the European family, there are rules. Those rules cannot be broken. Rule of law, the defense of minorities, the defense of liberal values. What is your opinion that what is the balance that we can find between being forceful, but on the other hand, do not, you know, have those people that want to be part of the European family believe this propaganda that the European Union are bullies or are inefficient or not, they're not desired. Okay, so I think it's, it's, it's strictly related to the question of what could the EU do uh, and how could it be more successful because what we've been witnessing in the last couple of years is that while uh, EU institutions have came up with a lot of doctrinal sort of innovations and ideas how to constrain uh, these, these countries that, uh, that are sort of showcasing uh, authoritarian traits, um, it was not successful. Uh, I would say that in terms of Hungary, it was the least successful. So in terms of Hungary, the, the EU was the least successful in pushing back Viktor Orban's regime to fully backtrack on, on system transformation efforts. It was a little bit different in the case of Poland. But so what we've seen is that that I think, and we can go back a little bit in, in time, that the EU is mainly willing to exercise in a very effective manner its constraining power when it comes to the stability of the Eurozone. And in case of member states, you know, violating the economic criteria, so it's enough to, to think about, you know, the debt crisis and what happened to Greece. But otherwise, when it comes to rule of law violation, we've been witnessing a lack of political will to act. And obviously, Article 7 is not suitable for, for dealing with these kind of issues. It's a pretty straightforward and blunt instrument in a political community. I mean, sort of sort of not political, a community that avoids harsh language and sanctioning its own member states. And also, it, I believe that this Article 7 is, 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 is strongly political instrument in a deeply legalized environment that was meant to serve sort of the rule of deterrence. And at the end of the day, it all comes down in, in the council. We know that. So, so that's why it's so problematic. I, I would give two points on what, on which sort of, in which directions could the EU institutions be more effective uh, to exercise their constraining roles. So I believe that, that uh, with more progressive infringement actions, they could provide enough space to restrict authoritarian regimes. And in order to do that, the European Commission has to move faster and move much more efficiently and change the dynamics of these long-lasting infringement procedures to leave, because they simply leave too much room to, for system-changing actions of these governments. Um, and I think right now, one of the weakest points of these infringement procedures is that they typically target specific violations of EU law and cannot really grasp the very essence, the systemic nature of democratic backsliding in Central and Eastern Europe. 
And in order to make this procedure more efficient uh, and effective, uh, accelerated infringement actions with applications for interim measures should be systematically considered. Uh, plus, the European Court of Justice should prioritize these infringement actions to prevent further harm by national governments before these very long-lasting rulings, the procedures are issued. And arguably one of the strongest means of influence on FIDES, and I think on some extent on PIS, is, is strictly related to the budget discussion and, and the, the discussion about EU funds. So in Hungary, just very briefly, EU sub subsidies account for up to 5% of the GDP, and they have been the primary target of corruption since FIDES came to power in 2010. So moreover, they serve, uh, it's, and it's a pervert effect, they serve the important role of system legitimizing and system supporting uh, sort of function. So one of the most significant doctrinal, uh, doctrinal innovation that came up in the last years was that conditionality should be sort of introduced and the conditionality proposal of the commission to tidy EU funds to respect the rule of law, it was on the table, but it was already weakened <laughs> during the the budget negotiation, again, for political lack of political will. Uh, and my problem with this is that I often have this assumption that new doctrinal innovations are coming up simply because it could serve a role as an excuse not to use the currently existing EU mechanism, because that's the good news. I mean, the EU already has a sufficient legal basis to suspend EU funds if rule of law uh, norms are systematically violated. So. I, me personally, I, I agree with those scholars such as Daniel Kalman or Kim Lane Chapela, who have been claiming for years that first and foremost, the currently existing mechanisms should be used first in a more effective and systemic manner. For instance, uh, the common provision regulations, uh, which it's already existing and there to, due to lack of political will, it hasn't been used against uh, neither Hungary or, or Poland. We do have the experience regarding economical pressure with what happened during the crisis. And I know this well because I live in Portugal and Portugal, Ireland, Greece and Spain, the famous pigs, uh, they, you, the European Union was forceful then. They say, all right, this is the conditions for you to get out of the crisis. These are the rules. These are the regulations. You have to follow this. And we did. And of course, you know, we, we were able to get out a little bit of the, the crisis. So getting back to tying, you know, financial support to this kind of um, criteria. All right. You have to respect the rule of law. And if you don't, then we'll don't have you don't have any more funds. So you already explained it, but I would like to stay here a little more. How will this be, you know, absolutely? A, a key to solve the problem, if it is, and again, how much will this reflect then on the population that they won't have the money, they won't have the funds, they won't have the investment. Of course, Fidesz, and as you said, and they'll be, they've been using that, which is they use the money from European Union to promote themselves. If we stop that, it's good, but then we stop the flow of money to solve problems in, in those countries. How do you see this, all this shaping up? So first of all, it doesn't have to be that drastic. Um, I mean, it doesn't have to be like, uh, you know, withdrawing like all the like structural funds uh, per se, uh, but it could be just simply limited according to, you know, the currently existing sort of mechanism that could be used to 
to to postpone and and in this regard and i think it's also important what you mentioned about how could the balance between these measures and and public attitudes be maintained in a way that citizens are not going to be alienated at the end of the day this is very difficult i mean to solve this problem but as I mentioned before, these regional strongmen are successfully exploiting this east-west divide. And what could help here, I believe, is that obviously there are rule of law issues in other member states as well. So this is not exclusively about Central and Eastern Europe, and it's not exclusively about Malta and Romania and, and Slovakia and Bulgaria, which are also on the radar, sort of, or beneath the radar of, of the Commission, but about Western countries as well. So in a nutshell, I think that the Commission should not turn a blind eye to any infringements. They would need to come up with solutions that like broader uh, that goes beyond this uh, this specific region because hypocrisy really pushes European integration into an unwanted law and lane and and it is it is really exploiting. It helps to exploit anti anti use sentiments and to accelerate the political discourse pushed by these governments that are anyway depicting uh, the EU as using double standards, even when those kind of criticisms that are coming from the EU institutions are, you know, are correct and are sort of legitimized. Because what we've been witnessing in this country is that Hungary is the furthest into autocracy. It goes, I mean, that's, I think it, it, it's, we can, we can say that it's fair to, fair to mention that um, comparing to what's happening in, in, in Hungary, uh, and the Hungarian system transformation efforts compared to what has been happening, I don't know, in, in Portugal, it's it's not comparable. All right. Now, as we're getting closer to the end of the conversation, I'm going to get a little more personal. You are on the front lines of this uh, fight for liberal values, for democracy, for more openness. You have a connection with both countries, like I mentioned in the beginning. Uh, how do you see thing this this going on like for example right now this uh the parliament in hungary giving this full powers to fidesz and to viktor orban they keep saying that once the crisis is over everything will get back to normal I'm, i imagine you'll be a little skeptical with that i should be also because once people start having power they don't give up that power very easily and uh, and then tell us what can people do? What can not only people on the on the ground like you, but also all Europeans? What can we do? Okay. Um, well, if you don't mind, I wouldn't go into very personal, uh, but uh, I think really the, the the most sort of challenging systemic risk is that that these kind of emergency regulations regulations that have been uh, you know pushed. In the last couple of weeks, by these by these governments, could could remain in force even even beyond the pandemic crisis, as we have seen it before. So if you if you think about a migration crisis, the the urban regime has has a huge track record in that. I mean, despite the number of asylum seekers arriving to Hungary has dropped heavily, the anti-migrant sort of government has continuously renewed the state of emergency of mass migration, announced after 2015. Uh, the, you know, the refugee crisis. And uh, yeah, the problem is that this is really a tried and tested toolkit of authoritarian leaders in general. I mean, if we if we go beyond the European Union, one of the primary example uh, is, is Recep Tayyip Erdogan, who after the failed coup d'etat has consolidated his power by, you know, like remaining two, two years already with the with the with the state of emergency. So I'm I'm concerned 
yeah, as you mentioned, and as I also wrote before, it's uh, it's very easy to introduce this kind of uh, um, sort of measures, but it's quite quite difficult to abandon them. And another challenge from the sort of the from the side of the public attitudes is that people they simply they simply get used to it. I mean, um, um, you know, this this Italian philosopher he was like. Um, I think his name, oh, sorry, I don't remember, but I think it was like Gambenon. He said, like, once this kind of emergency measures have been taken, um, it can simply, you know, stay with the society and it can get established in the long run because the people that get used to it, because throughout the crisis, there's sort of openness towards uh, authoritarian solutions and measures. It's just, you know, it's 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 easier to proceed with that because uh, when they feel that their own safety is at risk, uh, it's it's sort of accelerating this kind of um, thing to rally around the flag and to and to to provide support for for the leader for the for the strong leader in the wrong run. and that's that's why I'm mainly concerned. Uh, and we have been witnessing uh, very interesting cases in the last couple of weeks in Hungary. That the government was practically using this uh, special legal order and, and crisis situation for simply for political pretexts. So, local mayors in the countryside provided by extended power. They were taking over entire budgets. They were taking over uh, the, the, the you know so 100% of the wages of the oppositional sort of representatives of the of the of the you know the, the representative bodies and so on and so forth. Uh, and and uh, I, I assume that there will be more cases like that. And and what's concerning is that we don't know uh, when this sort of special legal order could and if it will be lifted by the government. Because while it's saying it will, at the end of the day, it will be the parliament with uh, dominated by a constitutional two-third majority of the government will have a say in that. And uh, I would say that. <laughs> If we have a look at the last 10 years, this government has a certain history with, um, with this kind of authoritarian approach. And, uh, and, and I would not be surprised if we would be witnessing the same sort of approach as we've been witnessing with regards to the migration crisis, as I just mentioned. Very good. Um, well, one thing that people can do is to follow your work. So please tell us where can people know more particularly the work you do and uh, the opinions you um, publish on this particular point and also on on the social social media. Yes, yeah, so um, if anyone is interested what I'm doing, uh, they can follow me on Twitter and they can also follow my sort of op-eds, uh, sort of opinionated analysis on Visegrad Inside, which is a regional platform, a think tank and a magazine focusing on Central Eastern European issues. And I'm I'm a fellow in the Democracy Project, which is um, exclusively focusing on uh, democratic backsliding and and media capture related issues. So um, so they can follow me and my my analysis on on Vishagradinside.com. Yes, and I'm going to put this links in the description of the podcast edit. It was uh, such a privilege to have you here. I know you didn't want to get it too much into uh, what you do personally, but you're doing a tremendous job. I read you very attentively and uh, I, I do believe that people like you are crucial to not only get out of this crisis, but to have a stronger European Union. 
I'd like to have you back on the podcast later on so that we can talk about more about academic issues. Um, uh, Edit is doing her PhD, which I'm also following, trying to follow in closely uh, how that academic, uh, your academic path will come through, because I do believe that you have a lot to give to, uh, to Europe and to European Union. So thank you again so much for coming to the podcast. Thanks a lot, Ligrado. It was a real honor to me to be on board. The Liberal Europe podcast It's organized by the European Liberal Forum with the support of Movimento Liberal Social in Portugal. This podcast is co-founded by the European Parliament, and the European Parliament is not responsible for the contents of this podcast or any use that may be made of it. The views expressed on this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the European Parliament and or the European Liberal Forum. <laughs>